1: This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. You can
2: find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handle them all in one place with the Chase Mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase Mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan, Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC.
3: When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do.
0: this past tuesday december 1st we celebrated world's aids day it's an opportunity for people worldwide to stand in solidarity with the fight against hiv to show support for people living with hiv and to commemorate those who've died from aids related illnesses globally there's an estimated 38 million people who currently have the virus and since 1984 More than 35 million people have died of HIV or AIDS. As traumatizing as those numbers are, they are just numbers when I say them. And that's why today, we present you with this special episode. Five real stories from people who've either contracted the virus or have been deeply affected by it. We made this piece in collaboration with the AIDS Memorial. For those unfamiliar with their work, I encourage you to visit them on Instagram. The page is a collection of portraits, people sharing their stories of love, loss, and remembrance. Today on the show, we hope to share in that same spirit. Now, before we start, I want to offer a fair warning. What you're about to hear is incredibly painful and sometimes graphic. These are brave individuals willing to share their histories and traumas publicly. These are stories often around fear and abandonment of people trying to accept themselves in a world that has been historically unkind to the LGBTQIA community. These stories show the ramifications and the residual consequences of this disease, but They are also stories, I think, of hope and triumph. I present you these people as I approach them. Complete strangers. In my four and a half years of doing Talk Easy, there has been no greater privilege than helping tell these stories. I think you'll understand why. Thank you for listening. Hello. Hi. Hi, Sam. Thank you for having me. Aaron, thank you for being here. I really appreciate your time. Why don't we just jump right in? I wanted to start with where you were at in March of 2008.
2: I was in Beaumont, Texas, hospitalized. I was diagnosed with AIDS and uh, end-stage renal failure. So graduating senior at Prairie AM A&M University, and I was due to graduate that May. Working really hard overnight stocking jobs and I believe I was doing a 17-hour credit load. And I was taking one course actually at University of Houston because I wanted to get completed so bad that semester. So I was kind of working myself really hard, diligently towards graduation. But yeah, there was something going on with my body and I, I didn't know. I just felt like I had life leaving my body and eventually it just felt like I was dying. I did go and visit my general physician and did a battery of tests, but came up with nothing. Just never tested, at least with my physician, never tested for HIV. Um, so I got to the point where I was diagnosed with AIDS on the week of my mother's uh, retirement party. Mm. Yeah, I just had literally no energy. And lying on the couch of my mother, she uh, she just cried seeing me in that, in that condition. And it was, it was really upsetting because I, I really didn't know what was going on myself. I was never arrogant enough to believe that I could not contract HIV. But at the same time, it was a surprise to me because I, I did have a few sexual partners. But um, as we know, that doesn't really mean anything. It, it just takes more time.
0: So you drive back home for your mother's retirement party. Yes. It's in that time that you're diagnosed with AIDS. Yes. She's not aware of that diagnosis, correct?
2: No. And to be clear, I didn't know that I had, uh, or I was HIV positive. So my initial diagnosis was was AIDS. And I had a CD4 count of 4 um, come to find out. And yeah, so I had an AV implanted into my, into my heart. I guess you just, yeah, you know, directly into my chest. And I had to go um, emergency dialysis treatments. Very soon after I was checking to the hospital into a room. So it was just a crazy uh, whirlwind for both of us. And uh, but yes, so my mother, she didn't know that I had contracted HIV either.
0: Did she know that you were gay?
2: She did suspect and we never had a conversation about it. But no, she didn't know. (laughs) So actually, I was awakened with the news by my general physician at the time. I didn't really have a, a relationship with so yeah, so she awakened me and she said, "Wake up! It's AIDS. Are you surprised?" And and I just will will never forget that because um I was asleep. She was at my bedside. My mother was sitting in the room, and in addition to my mother being in the room, actually I was I was hospitalized in the same hospital room as my half brother. <laughs> So, yeah, so that's not supposed to happen. So my half brother, we have the same last name. We're hospitalized in the same room and he, he dealt with congestive heart failure and diabetes like my father did. And he has since passed away. But, yeah, so I was I was outed as being HIV positive or being um, an AIDS patient, essentially, and kind of go hand in hand being gay. So I was I was outed. Uh, in front of my mom. And, uh, you know, to this day, and I guess I would never know because my half brother passed away. I don't know if he heard that conversation.
0: So lying there in the hospital, you believe that your mother would potentially abandon you after learning that information?
2: I did. Especially in that time, a little bit over 10 years ago, that was so prevalent in the news especially as a, I was a young college kid. You can say I was a young adult, a young college kid. But those are typically the stories that we hear, particularly in my community as a Black gay male, of parents abandoning their children or kicking them out of the house because of their sexuality. It's, that was pretty much the norm or what we were we were led to believe that, you know, you're, you're just being abandoned by your parents and kicked out of home. Of course, I wasn't living at home, but just about it being abandoned by your parent, um, but yeah, that was going through my mind in the, in that time and at that time. If she did, I knew I would have just given up. So, so it was, so that was tough because uh, I do know for sure if my mother had abandoned me in that moment and said, oh, "My son is gay and now he's has AIDS," she didn't want anything to do with it. I would have given up. That would have been the end of the story. I have no doubt about that. <laughs> but she did, and and um we have a wonderful relationship today. And uh believe in many ways I've I've made her proud.
0: It must be hard to imagine that possibility that she could have walked away.
2: And and it happens, unfortunately, you know, being gay or being lesbian or being trans or being bi. You know, kids are abandoned by the people who are supposed to have the most love and compassion for them in the world. But yeah, certainly in the context of what I thought surely was my deathbed, that was definitely very, very difficult to to grapple with.
0: Now, you thought it was your deathbed because the doctor said your kidneys were gone and that you wouldn't even be able to urinate again.
2: Yes, and... (laughs) My father was actually on on dialysis and his end end of life, but I didn't know much about dialysis or nephrology or or how kidneys function or don't function, ability to urinate. So just kind of hearing that my kidneys were gone. That's what the nephrologist said to me, that my kidneys were were gone and to stop thinking about it.
0: What do you mean by stop thinking about it? Well, my mother, and and I
2: guess I, I did too, still had a bit of hope. <laughs> that things may turn around, or that you know, with my kidneys, which we never hear about stories where where people kidney function improve, or at least not their kidney function. Typically, they they have to get an to implant. So it so it may have sounded just fanciful to the doctor, certainly. But yeah, I, I think we, for whatever reason, held on to a bit of optimism that maybe that wasn't the end. For me, he, he definitely wanted us to get rid of any notion that there was a possibility that my condition would improve. I would be able to return to school. I was just kind of made to believe that was I was basically in end of life. Not just my kidney, but end of life.
0: You're sitting there and you're being told, this could be the end. And you and your mother are saying, no, it's not. No, it's not. On the other side of that, if the hope persists, what did you see for yourself? What were you fighting for?
2: I knew that uh, just kind of negotiating, I guess you can say, with the higher being or spiritual realm. I, I um, My belief in religion really was broken at a, an early age, kind of through some of my experiences at home with my father. So certainly I just kind of stopped believing in a God because I just, to me, if that was the God that I was... Presented, I didn't want any parts of that. So, in my college years, I just kind of began to reject the idea that there was any type of higher power. But I knew, I knew that I wanted to return to school and I wanted to do, I guess, what people thought was what I should be doing with my life. But I, I knew that if I was going to get out of that situation, if there was any any hope for my kidneys to function again. If there was any hope for AIDS not to be the end of me, that I needed something greater than myself, if not a deity, just call it a miracle. I don't care what you call it, but I just knew that it, it needed to be something from outside of myself to make that possible. You know, there were some nights I I, I wailed and I cried and I cause myself negotiating, you know, that if I was able to... Um, Not if for that not to be my fate, that I wanted to be able to contribute something positive to society. I didn't know how, but I knew that if I was to overcome such such a trial, that I wanted to give back something to someone and or whoever society in whatever way that I can.
0: And is that what happened?
2: That's what happened. So after I was released from the hospital, I want to say my last, my last dialysis treatment was either late June or early July. But yeah, that was just, uh, (laughs) I guess you could say my indomitable spirit at the time. And and I'm trying to regain some of that in some ways in other parts of my life, but it was a bit hectic. Uh, Certainly mentally, I I was um, everywhere, but I was alive. Which is great, and I still had the sense that I let down my mother because uh, because there was no guarantee that I would be able to go back to school, or which was a goal I set for myself. But I knew that it was also something that made my family proud because I I didn't know what my life would be like, and I certainly didn't imagine that I would be able to return to university, though so I did. But yeah, it was crazy. I think I had dialysis treatments at least twice a week, but I want to say maybe three times a week, my my mother would drive me to my treatments. Sometimes she'll stay there the entire time. Sometimes she'll run an errand and come back. So yeah, it was was tough. (laughs) It was really tough. But yeah, as soon as I was able to return to university, I, I looked very different. Typically, at the time, I believe my normal weight was 170, 175 pounds. I was closer to 140 pounds when I returned to school. Still trying to regain my energy. And um it was tough, but I just stayed the course. And, and I knew returning to university, and I just had an I, I just had another go at it. So I gave it my all. I, I want to say I that was the, the hardest. Since my freshman year, I want to say that was the next two semesters was probably the most dedicated and the most hardworking I've been in university because I knew that I had no business being back. (laughs) Um, So, you know, I I was able to graduate cum laude. uh, But yeah, it wasn't an easy road back, but I did it.
0: Do you feel like you're still on that road to regaining who you once were in 2020? (sighs) Say
2: Yes. And, um, but you know, I something that's also tough for me this year, talk kind of current 2020 with COVID-19. I lost, this year, I lost to COVID one of my dearest cousins that essentially took care of me when I was in undergrad. Um, On weekends, I would drive from the campus to Houston and spend weekends with my cousin, Larry. He would cook amazing meals. We would go out for fun. A couple of the local clubs, and just um, a really strong figure in my life, and also helping me to kind of navigate what does it mean to be a gay male, what does it mean to be a gay black male. He passed away this year to COVID <laughs> during my studies, and you know, that was really tough. And um, something about my cousin Larry, I want to say. So my 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 aunt uh, Effie Holloway Lathan, um, she was. I want to say the first, yeah, the first in my family, my, my paternal family to graduate from Prairie View A&M University in uh, 1953. And she coached the championship basketball team. And she was my greatest, greatest inspiration. And um, she visited me too. And I was in the hospital. She didn't know at the time what was going on. But later I told her that, hey, Aunt Effie, uh, I was diagnosed with AIDS. And that's what was going on with me. And um, I, I'm living with HIV today. And she she just told me that she did not care. And the only thing she cared about was that I was okay and how proud she was of um, me going to be graduated from her alma mater. And yeah, that, that's all she cared about. It's just that I was okay and how proud she was of me. Well, and she was looking forward to attending my graduation. Well, she was, she was killed by a drunk driver on um, December 31st, 2008. So she wasn't there for me, in spirit she was, but she wasn't there for me. And when I got the news, I was at um, celebrating New Year's with my cousin Larry, we were in a nightclub, and and my mom actually called me. (laughs) And I picked up the phone and I could make out what my mom said and I collapsed in the club. And um, Larry, my cousin Larry was there for me. So to have lost him this year was just kind of really tough. I know they both would be very proud of me so 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 life is like that there's ups and downs but where i am in my life right now they'll be very proud of me and i have to give myself credit and i have to say you know what i'm proud of myself
0: what are you most proud of
2: i remember three years ago 2017 one of my close friends today was running for congress in los angeles actually Kenneth Mejia. And he organized a Medicare for All rally. And he asked me to speak. I was not one to give public speeches and that sort of thing. <laughs> but you know, because it was him, when certain people asked me to do things, I just, I just kind of do it. That occasion, I was speaking on behalf of Medicare for All so that whoever needed healthcare could access it free at the point of delivery. I publicly I guess you could say, well, not announced, (laughs) but but said, in fact, that I'm an AIDS survivor and an end stage renal survivor. That was monumental for me. So it kind of began there and it worked with the campaign and the values we were fighting for. And I just kind of came into owning who I am and what my experience was, and that, you know, today I'm a person living with HIV. And I thought that with a story like mine, you know, a lot of people don't (laughs) survive, I guess you could say, an AIDS diagnosis and not an end-stage renal failure diagnosis. So that was something that I thought I had to share. I I couldn't hide that experience from people. And hopefully it it gave others hope.
0: I thank you for sharing your story here on the show.
2: Thank you so much, Sam. I appreciate you for having me. This is something I never imagined myself doing. Hopefully it helps someone.
0: I think it will. Aaron, thank you very much. Yes, thank you. After nine years in the Navy, Aaron left America for the Netherlands. His goal was to complete a master's program at the UNU Merit, a research and training institute focused on social, political, and economic factors driving innovation. He met that goal, graduating with high marks this past year. He hopes his next job is working with technology designed to eradicate HIV-AIDS, a job geared towards HIV research. If Aaron's 30-plus years on this earth is any indication, he will find that job. After losing his last partner to HIV complications and working through the grief of that loss, he's found love again he's hopeful about that too. He says, it's a man I truly believe I'd be glad to spend the rest of my life with. Today, I'm just rooting for myself. Me too, Aaron. Me too. We'll be right back. Hi, James. Thank you uh, so much for sitting with me. I really appreciate your time. As you know, I'm speaking with those who've been impacted by the AIDS epidemic. And for you, I believe that begins in 1980s New Jersey, as a young gay teenager in the Catholic Church. You are now obviously in your 50s, but I wanted you to take us back to age 14, it's then that you're about to become a confirmed Catholic, and to do so, you have to participate in confession.
1: It was, one of, it was my first confession, and I had been bothered because I, there was something about me that I didn't understand, and probably about a few weeks before that, um, a neighbor, a, a friend of mine who was a boy neighbor, that was my best friend, he'd actually kissed me, um, which I really was devastated and shocked by because... Ultimately, I enjoyed it, and I was upset that I enjoyed it, and I thought it was time to put the stops on whatever my feelings were. So I went to uh, I went to my pastor and told him what had happened. We we'd actually had a class. Uh, we had a catechism class, and it was about forgiveness. And uh, I was fourteen, uh, and we were you know we were just we were all young, so we were coming up with examples of. What could be the worst thing? And we were just all asking, you know, uh, if if Hitler was truly sorry before he, you know, if he absolved himself before he died, is he forgiven? Yes. Al Capone? Yes. We're really coming up with the worst people in history to say if they were truly sorry and they had a confession because their theory was confession solves everything. So I thought about that. And then I went, when it was time for my confession, I told him what had happened. And he completely freaked out on me and was like this is abominable this is bad and I said but I never did anything all I did was kiss this boy and I don't want to be this way and I'm afraid that this is going to happen to me and I need you to help me and he's like no one can help you and he basically said you're damned to hell and there's nothing you can do about it I said look just two days ago we were talking about forgiveness and like you know we talked about everyone in the world that'd be forgiven he's like well they all could be forgiven but not you and that pretty much changed the course of my life. I basically became paranoid every day that I was going to die and die unabsolved. And I, I was in a big Irish Catholic family. I had 10 brothers and sisters, and my father was incredibly devout. And we were made to go to church every Sunday, every day of obligation, catechism. I was an altar boy, like really just every Catholic thing that was forced upon us was. And, um, I was trying to be the good boy and the best boy and the best student and the best everything. And I just thought after I had this information that this was going to be the thing to do me in and unravel me, I started to think about killing myself. And uh, the first, my first attempt was uh, my best friend lived in a high rise in our town. And I kept getting all of us to go up on the roof and hang out. So it kind of became our summer thing. So I could go up there and kind of figure out could I do this? And, um, so one night, uh, we were having a party. I'd applied to to one of the colleges I was, I applied to, I was waiting for a letter. Um, and I decided that night, I went up to the roof and to the top of the roof and I was climbing over the side of the balcony and my, my sister saw me and she was waving the letter that I'd got into school. And, uh, Clearly, she knew what I was going to attempt to do. So I climbed back over the fence and we didn't talk about it. And we just went downstairs. And, you know, then for days, like we didn't talk. And there was, you know, at this point, it didn't matter that I was going to die unabsolved because even though, you know, killing yourself would send you to hell forever, I just, I couldn't, I just didn't want to live anymore. And a few weeks later, I went to a friend's house for a graduation party and I went into her mother's medicine chest and stole a bottle of sleeping pills. And uh, a couple days later, me and my mom, we were just watching a movie and I really just, I, in my mind, my just, I can't even explain what my state of mind was at that time. But at that moment, I swallowed about half the bottle of pills. And, uh, and then I went upstairs. I was actually listening to the Beatles and there's a song called, She's Leaving Home. And I used to listen to it all the time. And um, I'd never really listened to the words before. And there was a point in the song, because I was going to go to sleep and I was just going to keep swallowing the pills. And there's a line in the song where uh, the mother comes down and she's carrying a letter. And she says, how could she treat us so thoughtlessly? How could she do this to me? And I realized, like, I just it kind of snapped. At me and I thought, I can't, I can't die here in this room. And she has, my whole family has no idea why I did this. So I just, <sighs> so I went downstairs and told her that I thought I did something stupid. <laughs> and we went to the hospital to get my stomach pumped. So um, that was all over. And... I was lying in bed and she basically said that she'd always thought that maybe there was something different about me and that uh, to please not ever do anything stupid and to know that I can tell her anything um, even though I didn't believe that and I was led to believe that I couldn't believe that from the church, that she would do anything she could to help me and as long as I promised her I wouldn't do that again, which I promised I would not do that again, especially since I knew, that she was going to be there to help me and that we didn't have to tell the rest of the family that we would take care of this on our own and just figure it out later down the road. And that is basically how the story begins.
0: I'm wondering when you're looking back on this younger version of yourself, who do you see?
1: Looking back on it now more, cause I would not have understood this then cause it's taken me so many years to understand was just really, um, Literally the trust I put in an organization and the things that they told me and the things they convinced me of. Because the worst thing also was after I was attacked and I was leaving his office, he said to me, and don't, don't try telling your parents because they'll never believe you. And I really, I believed that. And that is, that's really what set me on that path. Because I just thought, wow, now you just, you have no option, like, at all. You know, considering that, you know, this is 1983... So it was just a different, you know, (laughs) even my family couldn't wrap their heads around my, you know, my brother to my brothers. Everyone was a faggot and they beat up a faggot today. And, you know, I was picked on all the time on top of the fact, clearly uh, (laughs) there was something I didn't understand. I was also physically tiny. I did not go through puberty till my freshman year of college. So I was like (laughs) four feet tall and just frail and little. And the fact that even they could make me believe in one level of forgiveness and then the fact that like I couldn't be forgiven for something I didn't even ask for that I begged them and promised them I would change just the abandonment of just being thrown out and then just them making me believe if I went to my parents or my family that they would feel the same and like everyone else I was terrified of being of being thrown out and losing my you know I was we are very close my my whole family so just the thought of losing that whole thing for something that I didn't even understand how I was this way. I actually kept a few diaries back then and a couple of years ago, I went back and read the diary and, and I, I wish I could explain just, especially at that time, like on a daily basis, what it felt like to get up and have no will to live, but be afraid to die. Because if I died, I was, go- I really believed I was going to hell and just to try and function. I mean, it just made me completely frantic every day and just stressed and Okay, I don't do drugs, but I guess it must be what it must be like to be on speed, like all the time. Speed and fear was pretty much how I lived.
0: I, I think some drugs are more fun than that, but <laughs> <laughs> not that I, of course, would know.
1: I'm more of a downer's guy, so I guess it's easier.
0: <laughs> what you're describing is this feeling of being trapped, that you had no other moves to make. But you did end up telling your mother... And in turn, she helped you connect with a therapist. What happened in that first evaluation meeting with that therapist?
1: I met, you know, I met with uh, Dr. Ellis and uh, I remember we sat down and I filled out like a questionnaire and he looked at the questionnaire and then I don't really remember the questions he asked me at that point, but we really talked in generalizations about things. And clearly I could tell, you know, he was, as I look back on it now, he was guiding me along just because he knew. And uh, at the end of the evaluation, he, you know, I assumed I was insane. So I thought I was crazy. And I thought I was suicidal. I thought I truly thought there there were things wrong with me that I couldn't express. And after discussing some of that uh, a little bit, he's like, well, I don't really think that you're insane. I don't think you're any different than a boy your age. Um, He's like, I just think you might be gay," which again, for that time, was just so shocking to hear from someone. And I was really shocked to hear it from him. And my, I felt so assaulted because, A, I felt exposed, but, B, I thought, wow, he's now he's confirming... This thing that I cannot fix and I'm still gonna to go to hell for. So that was still my thought process. So it was kind of like being found out, but I was so annoyed I guess by being found out that I was like, Well, I don't wanna see you. I wanna see someone else who's gonna tell me the problem I think I have. <laughs> and and he basically said, Um, you know, give me a chance. We're not, I'm not you know, we're not gonna sit here and accuse you, like in everything, you know, you have things to talk about, and why don't you give me a couple sessions? Because at that time I think. I was seeing him two or three days a week at first. So I was like, okay, all right, I'll give you this week.
0: You you wrote that over the next few weeks, we would discuss the prospect of me living a celibate gay life. Dr. Ellis said it would seem somewhat unrealistic to exist by shutting a part of who I was off, which would not allow me to live completely as myself. My feeling was I'd rather fight to be a person that was acceptable not accepted.
1: You know, in in those first few weeks, I did come to the acceptance that okay, like I'm I'm gay and I can't change this. But my point of view at the time was uh, I'm happy to be gay, but I'm never going to act on it. I'm going to be completely celibate, and that's my take. So you know, which at first made him laugh, <laughs> but then again, as we started to talk more about things and about what my life as a gay person would be, he basically then said, you, you know, at some point, again, I was 17. I'd never experienced any, anything. It was very easy for me to imagine not ever having sex or being with anyone because I'd never been. So he did say as I got older and I got more mature, I would realize, especially since I was moving to New York, it would become very apparent very soon that it would be not realistic for me to not act on that at some point or not explore that. But that was so based in my thinking, believing that it was still so wrong and so abominable. I always thought in the back of my head there was some chance that I would wind up back in the church and be absolved and figure out a way (laughs) to just be, again, acceptable rather than uh, accepted for, for the part of me that really was who I was.
0: At certain points throughout the therapy, he would give you these homework assignments. One of them was to go... To New York for the weekend to watch the uh, Gay Pride Parade.
1: The week before the parade, he'd give me a copy of uh, *The Joy of Gay Sex*, which, of course, was just so at the time. Again, because of my upbringing, because of my, I, I'd never even seen a picture of someone having sex or any, you know. And these were incredibly graphic pictures, and they were also. Uh, I think I joked in the in the post that you know that book was written in the early '70s, and everyone looked like a hate Ashbury hippie. And I thought, is this like what I'm going to look like. Is this what I'm going to do? And this is disgusting. You know, I was just so offended by the whole um, idea that this is what sex was. Then I was really, then I was like, I'm firm that I'm not ever going to have sex because this book is gross. So let's move on. And he said, you know, and uh, we would started to talk about community. And because I was so upset that like, I thought this was the only kind of gay man. He was like, I want you to go to the PA Pride grade because you have to learn that there are many gay men at the time, there was a joke called birdcage gay, which was the Hawaiian shirt, you know, frosted hair, hairdress, you know, now they're all cliches and non-true, you know, they're, but I didn't have much exposure to what I thought a gay man was. And I thought, I'm not even that guy, so why do I have to turn into this man? So, so then he said, I'm going to send you to gay pride parade, and I just want to see what you think. On top of being conflicted and all of that then, I was also really in love with my best friend, at the time, who I just don't think ever came out of the closet. But we definitely had uh, a chemistry that I didn't understand at the time, which I understood, obviously, was my sexual attraction to him. And I really really thought I was in love with him. I just loved him as a person, and I admired him. So I asked him, I said, uh, I'm going to go to the Pride Parade. And he was like, I would love to go with you. So I was really excited, because it just... It was him. <laughs> I thought maybe there was some chance even at that point. But I was happy because I had no idea what to expect. So we get to the parade and uh, we came out of uh, Port Authority and walked straight over to the library in 5th. And just, you know, I just kind of planted myself there to see how that worked. And we were just, I mean, it was an enormous parade. And I saw preppy guys and I saw good looking guys. And I saw, you know, like I really, you know, as I started to notice that there were just so many men there. It kind of felt very comforting but then the thing that really became aware is I had this, this other sense that I was being looked at. I noticed people were looking at me, and then I started to look at them, and there was this kind of really, for the first time, this instant recognition that, oh, we're the same. And for as bad as I felt about myself up until that moment, there was something quite beautiful about feeling like I was part of of this, of this group of men and for them to look at me that way and for me to be able to look back at them that way and acknowledge them felt it was really like a revelation for me and we we were standing there for a while and then at one point we wanted to move down and just look from other you know or just go downtown or walk to other parts and we just ended up walking like right into the parade. So um, some other men just like took us by the arms and they just said, come on in. And basically we walked all the way downtown, but there's just literally that whole day. It was just really like, well, it was the first time that I was like, I'm okay with this. I think there's a life for me here in the city with this community. And I'll just, I don't have to figure it all out now, but I've, I can figure this out. And it actually, it uh, it definitely pulled me out of my funk and it gave me another reason to want to permanently get into the city faster than I was, I was planning.
0: After that kind of light bulb moment in New York, you go back to see Dr. Ellis. At some point, you stop seeing him. What happens on that last session of yours?
1: At that point, I'd really come to depend on him. I felt like he was the only person that understood me. Other than my mother, I'd still not told anyone in my family. I would told a few of my best high school friends who were all really great about it. I just really looked forward to those meetings because it's the one place I felt safe and accepting of myself. But it was almost, it was time for me, you know, and I'd also decided after the Pride Parade, I wasn't going to wait till the end of the summer, like I was going to buy a car and I took that money and didn't buy a car and was like, I'm moving like next week. So like, I really, I want to be in the city now. And I remember in that last meeting we we sat down and it, it seemed very abrupt. It was just like a normal week. And it was a normal session and we were ending the session. And he said, today's our last session. And I, same thing. I was so shocked. Like, I just thought, what did I do? What's brought me know, Like, and I asked him, are you moving? Or you, did you get a new job? And, he, uh, and I really, I remember I started crying because I said, I'm just starting to like myself and who I am and I'm not ready. And I just, I just need more time. And he said that, uh, there was, at this point, there was nothing else for me to learn that he could teach me, that all the things we talked about, even the things I didn't understand in those sessions, that it was now time for me to go out into the world and take all the things that I learned from him and live my life. And he basically, and we used to say these in sessions all the time, he would say things and he would question things about me. And I would say, you know, I don't, I don't understand this now. And he's like, well, you won't understand this now, but when you're 25, when you're 30, when you're 40, you will understand all of these things won't make sense to you now. They'll make sense to you as you become a man. And he said that I think there's a great man in there and it's time for you to go out and meet him. And someday I would like to know that man is a friend rather than a patient. And he gave me his phone number and his address. And I was so shocked that he lives in the city because I just thought, I thought if you live in the city, you live in the city, why would you work in New Jersey? <laughs> but um, I you know, I was just so shocked. It was almost like this big secret. I just thought, wow, this is amazing. He lives in the city and I can see him there. And he basically said after he gave me his number that um, he really, he wanted me to go out and be in the world for a couple of years. And that he said he thought that there was a great man in there. But when I thought, there was a great man in there, that that was when I could come back and see him. He's like, I don't want you to come in six months. It's not going to be a year. He's like, you just come back to me in a few years. I will always be here. I will always be at this address. And I want to meet that man when when you're ready. That was our last session. I never thought from the time I was 14, from that first confession, till that moment that I would ever that I would ever like myself or that I would ever think that I was worthy of anyone's... As a Catholic, I was just basically branded as bad. And I had nothing. Because of that, there was no reason for me to like myself. Um, And it was really the first time that not only did I like myself again, but I liked myself as a potentially gay man.
0: Two years later, you're in New York and you do decide to... Go visit him. Do you remember that day, going to his house?
1: I'd gotten a scholarship to go to school in London, and I had finally, I think like the first two days I was living there, I fell in love with a boy I would be with for four years. We decided to live together. I was actually coming back to New York to grab some stuff, to go over there and live with him. It wasn't even just because I was going because I had a boyfriend. It was also the first time in my life I felt stable and stable as a gay man. I had no issues about being who I was. And I was proud of that. And I really wanted him to know that. And I'm sure that is also what he wanted to know. So when I was home, uh, I was going through stuff and I found his address in one of my boxes that I keep cards and notes and things in. So when I found that, I was like, oh, you know, it was like a light bulb went on. Like, wow, I really think he'd be happy to see you. And I think he'd be happy to see where you are right now, as opposed to where you were the day you met him. So I went to his house and I rang the doorbell and a man came out, um, who I assumed was his boyfriend because he did tell me he had a partner. Um, I never asked who the man was, but I just assumed he was a partner. Uh, I just said, is Edwin here? (laughs) And I really caught him off guard because he, he gasped. And then he, he raised his hand to his face and he, he wailed. He just, he started crying, he he started crying out loud and heaving and sobbing. And I just stood there and I, I assumed I knew what happened. And, And, you know, sort of in between that, he just, he said that Edwin died two weeks ago. And uh, then he sat down on the stoop, and I sat down near him. We didn't say anything for a long time, and he just sat there, and he cried, and he cried. At one point, he stopped crying, and we were sitting. And then he said, he said, um, he's like, you must be James. He told me he might come someday. And uh, we didn't, again, speak for a while. We just sort of sat there. And at one point the silence was just so long that I there was nothing more to say. So we both stood up and um I went to hug him and he blocked me. He put his hand in front of me and he just said, I I I can't. But he said, The best to you and I hope you have a good life. And then he just turned around and went in. And that was that was it.
0: Was there more that you wish you could have said?
1: I was just so speechless. There's just, I just didn't even know how to process, especially since at that point, people were dying a lot and they were dying fast and people I knew were starting to get sick. It just didn't dawn on me that it would be him.
0: He was the first man he lost to AIDS, right?
1: Yes. And, you know, I guess the tragic thing about all of it, not just my situation in general, is clearly I would always want him to know The man I turned out to be was because of our sessions, because of the things he imparted to me, because of his trying to instill my being happy with myself. And I was so proud that I feel like I really uh, hopefully would have been a great lesson to him about how great he was uh, for me and that I never got to say that. But I feel like that just happened so much to everyone everywhere then that just so I just feel like. So much was left unsaid between people in general that you just, you never had the chance to say because it all just was taken from you so fast.
0: Given that so many people in your life have passed away to AIDS, I do wonder how you have continued to keep living. So
1: many of the men who mentored me also, in a way, never got to see me grow up. And... You know, I definitely still feel to this day I have some PTSD about that. But, you know, at the time, just so many people were dying and it was happening so fast. And the chaos and the fear and just that there was nothing on the horizon as far as any help coming our way, that fear it's it's what gave you the energy to survive, especially when you thought when these groups were coming together, that there could be the potential that even though something wasn't happening at that moment, there was a group of people now that were out there that were going to make sure that something happened. Or at least we had the camaraderie as a community that we would fight this, whether we saw the end of it or not, whether there was ever a drug or not. And that was kind of a real frantic energy, but it's just it really was almost like it propelled you forward. At the time, because it just, for some people, it was just so unbelievable how many people you lost or how many people were just dying on top of the fact that you were just terrified that you were next. So it was just such a crazy mindset to live in. I'm definitely affected to this day and just choices I make and things I do are still affected by that time.
0: Throughout growing up, you kept talking about how you were going to die unabsolved by the Catholic Church. You had this sort of pervasive, looming guilt. But there was another question that seemed central to your life, which was, can I be proud of the man I'm going to become? Edwin hoped one day that you'd become that man. So at 55, do you feel like you've become the man he thought you'd be?
1: I probably turned out to be exactly the guy he expected if I think of how the way we used to talk and the way he used to talk to me and you know there was a part of me again with all the catholic guilt and all of that there was just a point where I was angry enough to say that like I love my life and who I am enough that if I was going to hell the whole ride would be worth it because I wouldn't change one thing about my life um and especially now so i I think I became the person he wanted
0: to meet. I think you may be right. James, thank you very much for your time.
1: Thank you, thank you as well.
0: So long. After 35 years of working in fashion, James left the industry that gave him a voice, his ticket out of New Jersey and into New York. But before he walked out the door, he made another big move. He told the truth. He began whistleblowing on several casting agents, accusing them of misconduct. He spoke on behalf of models being discriminated against and mistreated within the industry. It was an unpopular decision within the upper echelons of the fashion world. But he did it. And his efforts resulted in a new charter, a contract of sorts, designed to create a more inclusive, Equitable and safe environment for future models. James has no immediate plans to return to fashion, though. For now, he resides in his home on Fire Island with his partner of 22 years. They fell in love in New York City in 1989 as the epidemic raged on. Somewhere, three decades after his death, I'd like to think Dr. Ellis is proud proud of the man that James became, and of the man he continues to be. up the letter that's lying there. She, we never thought of ourselves,
4: never a thought for ourselves, we struggle Hello? Hello. Hi.
0: Hi, how are you doing?
4: I'm well, how are you?
0: I'm doing all right. I really appreciate you sitting with me today. Um, I know this year must have been especially difficult for you in part because September 16th marked the 25th anniversary of your mother's passing to AIDS. Can I ask you, what was that like to commemorate your mother's life inside this pandemic?
4: (laughs) It was quite extraordinary. I felt like I was living through a second pandemic. <laughs> I think a, a lot of people um, from where I'm, I'm from in England didn't experience AIDS as a pandemic. I think it was, <laughs> I feel like I was one of the few people in, in the area that I lived that experienced AIDS as pandemic. And that's because my the geography of where I was, AIDS wasn't really around and that's what me- made my situation so unusual. But for me, it, it does feel like a second pandemic. And so a lot of these fears and worries and feeling of oppression and panicky feelings, and um, yeah, it's all coming back. And to have my, the anniversary, such a big anniversary of my mother's death going on within this pandemic was, yeah, does definitely feels poignant and a bit strange, to be honest.
0: When you're looking back at your mother, I'm looking at these photos right now. What kind of woman was she?
4: She was, you know, she was an English woman from a pretty normal middle-class white family from Southern England. She was full of life and fun and love. And, you know, she was a great, great mother. She... She was a stay at home mum. She cooked for myself and my sister, and she had loads of friends, and she was caring and fashionable into clothing. And I always remember one of my fondest memories of her is that she would, you know, she would come back after having gone out to parties or dinners, and then she would uh, do impressions of the people that she'd had dinner with, and used to make my sister and I laugh.
0: Were they? Favourable impressions?
4: (laughs) Not always. (laughs) 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 Not always. No, she was, she could be (laughs) quite cruel sometimes, but in a funny way. You know, if she didn't particularly like the people, she could be quite cruel. But, you know, in a a loving way, she was never mean.
0: When did you first realise that something may be wrong?
4: (sighs) You know, the the, fun, the funny thing is about my parents' marriage is that for years and years, it all looked fine to me and my sister. And then um, the cracks started to show when I reached my mid-teens and my father left. He just suddenly left the house. He packed his bags and left. He had been starting to spend a little bit more time away from home. My sister at this stage was was at university in Glasgow and I was busy with my um, design college and uh, he had started to spend more time away from home but I didn't really take much to notice of that I was probably too wound up in myself you know at that age as you are but one day I came home and he packed his bags and left the house and I was just like well, what the hell just happened and he he'd moved out and shacked up with his, his new young much younger girlfriend and he had been starting to look a little ill, like he had been starting to lose weight. But I put that down to maybe, okay, they're stressed. And mum also had been starting to look stressed and ill. And, and then suddenly this, this split happened and I was completely thrown. And yeah, this this split happened quite suddenly. And I, you know, my college work suffered. I was, I was moody. I was depressed. Mum... Mum just said oh, we you know we haven't been getting on for a while and swept the excuses under the carpet. Mum then moved her boyfriend in who she'd been seeing for a while unbeknownst to me. And then dad got got ill and mum told me that he told me and my sister that he had bowel cancer. She didn't want to tell us tell us the truth. She told us that he had bowel cancer. So my sister and I spent the next few years, you know, visiting dad at his new house with his new girlfriend, watching his health decline, 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 thinking, okay, he's got bowel cancer. Mm. And it wasn't until he was really, really sick that he was practically on his deathbed that I confronted mum and... She told me that actually, Dad has doesn't have bowel cancer. That he actually has AIDS, and that she was also sick with AIDS as well.
0: When you say you confronted your mother, what did that look like?
4: It wasn't really a confrontation. I'd come home from visiting Dad at the hospital and realized that that was probably the last time I was going to see him. He was unconscious. He was skeletal he his retinas had detached he was blind he was he was barely there my sister was with me and he he barely knew that we were in the room I went back from the hospital from that meeting still you know at that stage I hadn't known still didn't know he had AIDS I went back to my mum my mum was lying in bed ill with shingles actually and I said mum dad is so sick. I think, you know, he's he's dying and he's not going to make it like another few days. And we were lying in bed together and she just turned to look at me and said, darling, I have to tell you something. I have to tell you something that I haven't been telling you the truth. And, and, uh, I've got to tell you that dad's not dying of bowel cancer and, um, that he's actually was actually dying of AIDS and I I had no clue. I had no clue. I just I I just felt like I'd been punched in the stomach. And then of course moments later I realized that that she was also sick. I was I asked the question, what about you? And she just looked at me and said, I'm not gonna lie to you, darling. And I just just um then realized that she was also sick. And then, of course, the questions came. I was like, how how did this happen, Mum? How did this happen? And She told me that he had been having affairs from the beginning of their marriage. She thinks he'd been having bisexual affairs and that she'd known this for a long time, but she hadn't wanted to break up the family because of my sister and myself, and she'd loved him and hadn't wanted to leave him and that she... You know, that was, you know, was obviously a mistake and...
0: Did she ever confront him about that?
4: You no, know, I don't think she ever did. I think they had a few fights, but I don't think she ever confronted him about it. I never got to confront my father about it because that was that time at the hospital was the last time I saw him. I didn't go back to say goodbye, I was so angry. I felt so betrayed that I didn't go back to see my father. He died about a week later.
0: When you were with your mother in bed, as she's sick, did you feel that she had some amount of regret?
4: I think she had done a lot of processing by the time she told me. I think um, she had known for almost a year before she came to tell me. I think she was initially extremely angry with my father, but I think, you know, she told me, she told me, don't don't be bitter and don't be angry with your father. You know, that will bring you no peace in your life. You've just got to somehow find it in your heart to understand and forgive him.
0: And have you taken her advice?
4: (laughs) Yeah, I've tried to. I think forgiveness is a layered process. I think it's taken me a long time to forgive my father, and I think I've done it in layers. I think somewhere down deep inside me, there's still a little knot of anger, and I'm hoping that one day I can let that go. But when I think of my father, I still love him, and I still appreciate the childhood he gave me because he gave me a wonderful childhood and I know I know he loved me I'm just I'm just so sad that it had to go this way I'm so sad that he couldn't be who he really was with me
0: in that period of adjustment that you were talking about you wrote that there was an incredible fallout from the loss of your mother And then some ensuing chaos in your 20s.
4: A lot of chaos in my 20s. The book that I've written, The 14th Wife, is basically focused on this fallout from what happened to my parents. So the loss of my mother and my father just completely created this hole in my life. You know, we had such a what many would look from the outside as a perfect family, you know, good-looking parents, you know, we had money, we had a nice house, we had, you know, my sister and I went to a private school, we had, we had friends, we had this, you know, idyllic dream life. And this was ripped, ripped away from me. And that loss, that, that sense, that loss of sense of belonging left a huge hole. In my life, I went straight into a, a very intense first love relationship after the loss of my mom, just a few months afterwards, which lasted a couple of years. In my mid twenties, partied a lot, took a lot of drugs. I just was avoiding dealing with my grief. But that relationship ended after two and a half years. You know, I was the distraction; wasn't fulfilling me. So i I couldn't cope with that anymore, so I ended that that relationship and and then losing that relationship and his family as well and I dived into a very deep hole and suffered from depression and loneliness and yeah I went to a very dark place and then started to look for anything that could bring me out of this hole and ended up meeting um, this tribe of people, this Native American Indian man who was touring the UK with his followers, as I found out were his his wives, and um, got involved with this cult leader and then ended up traveling with him to New Mexico and marrying him.
0: There's about a thousand questions I have now. Um, <laughs> You said that so casually.
4: <laughs> I think because I've just written the book and it's <laughs> I've written about it so much and talked about it so much, but no, of course it wasn't a, um, <laughs> it's a very unusual thing to happen. And the thing is, it was so crazy that I told no one I told no friends. I didn't even tell my sister. I just went and I didn't go for very long. I was over in New Mexico for about five weeks. And I married him during that time. But why I went out there is because he, he promised me this family, right? I was, I was searching for a family and he promised me this new life where I would be, have all these sister woman wives and I would be included in a family and have this great sense of belonging and I would be part of something. And it was very enticing for me. I was, I was so lonely. I was so depressed. Yeah, so I went and I didn't tell anyone and no one knew where I was. And my sister in the UK and my friends were like panicking and it was quite a strange thing to do.
0: It sounds like you did a whole bunch in your 20s and 30s to cope with this tremendous loss. Yeah. I just want to know, how have you continued to move forward?
4: Well, I, I left the cult because... I actually came to the realisation that, was well, this place is not for me. And I had a dream or a visualisation about my mom, And she came to me in a dream and said to me, get out of here. This is not for you. So I'd left. I came back to the UK and I started to rebuild my life. I found a job that I enjoyed and... getting some therapy and meeting a, a good man who I'm now married to and have a daughter with, I slowly started to rebuild my life and it takes a lot of work, but I got there. And part of the reason I wanted to write the book is that I wanted to record my journey for my daughter to To say to her, look, you know, you can go through hell, but if you keep going and if you are strong and have hope, then you can can reach the other side and you can have a good life and don't give up, don't give up. That's why I wrote the book. The book's dedicated to my daughter.
0: Well, I look forward to reading it. Until then, thank you for sitting with me. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Sam. Stay safe. You too.
4: Thanks.
0: 25 years after her mother's death, Kelly has put her family's story on the page. Her debut book, titled The Fourteenth Wife, is now available on Amazon. Hello? Hey, what's up? Jeff, how are you doing? Um, Before we get started, where are you and what do you do for work?
5: I'm in Orlando, Florida. Uh I was, well, I'm still a freelance writer and graphic designer, but I'm actually in business with my dad right now. (laughs) So that's what I'm doing. How's that going? It's good, a little frustrating, but it's good, it's good. I can't complain.
0: Why is it frustrating?
5: Uh, Cause we bump heads. And then the person that I know we're in question for today, for for today's episode is actually my dad's baby sister.
0: So why don't we go to that? Because in 1994, you got a phone call. Yeah. What was that call?
5: It was my mother telling me that my aunt had passed away. So my mom was at work at her hair salon and I was with some friends and, you know, we were young. We're like, 15, 15, 16 years old, 16, something like that, 16. So, and we needed her right home and I called her and she was still at work. So I asked her if she can come get us and she's like, I have something to tell you. That's when she said, you know, your aunt passed away. And I was like, what? And I kind of froze and I had two of my best friends, a guy and a girl uh, next to me. They're just looking at me like, is your mom coming to get us, you know? And I'm just like, you know, froze. The phone dropped and I just broke down crying. And my female friend uh, picked up the phone and talked to my mom. And I had to kind of walk away for a little bit.
0: What was her nickname growing up?
5: Uh, she Her name was Blanqui. Her real name was Blanca. Nickname is Blankie, Blanqui. B-L-A-N-Q-U-I. <laughs> and Blanqui was young. You know, she died at uh, 35 years old so she was young she was my young hip art you know so i was in my teens she was in her mid-30s so she wasn't too too far apart in age and we liked a lot of the same music she's into fashion she was into the club scene the new york city club scene so you know i always got a lot of tips from her like what's hot what's not and she liked all the neon colors which i still love myself Uh, I'm a huge fan of this 80s series called *Gem and the Holograms, you know, it kind of all (laughs) intertwined.
0: You said that she was one of the first people to realize that you were gay. Yeah. How did she realize it?
5: Her being around a lot of gays in the scene, you know, you kind of know. And I mean, my parents knew, but my, my, my aunt was very defensive, very protective. With it. Like if anybody made a derogatory comment, you know, she'd smack them behind the head or you know, she'd call somebody out. And there was even an incident where my aunt almost got into a physical altercation with one of my mom's friends, a female friend of my mom's who me and her son got into a little uh TIFF when we were kids and you know, my my queerness came out and <laughs> you know, the sassiness and you know, she made a comment and my aunt like literally got in her face, and it was it was about to go down like some mob mob wives, you know, uh, real housewives type shit was gonna go down.
0: <laughs> Did it?
5: Almost, almost. My mom had to jump in and defuse the situation. I remember in the late eighties, early nineties. Bobby Brown was very popular, and MC Hammer. And I remember I got these like MC Hammer poofy pants, like <laughs> you know, but, but I got them in a leopard print. Then my aunt had made me, my mom's sister made me these leopard print pants. And leopard print was cool for anybody, guys or girls in that, in that time. And my dad was really pissed off. He said, it looked girly, it's a leopard print. And that turned into a bit of a, a heated discussion between her and her brother and my dad. And she was, again, defending me. Let him wear what he wants. Said, Who cares? It's a freaking leopard print. Like, let him wear it.
0: What did your family think of your aunt?
5: They loved her dearly. But they always ran into headaches with her. (laughs) So, you know, she was always doing something crazy.
0: What does that mean, crazy?
5: You know, always getting involved in some type of a situation where she probably needed help to get bailed out of, or, like, I need you to come get me, or I need you to, you know, like, let me borrow this, or, you know, like, I need you to come through right now, like, come over here, like, that kind of stuff, which most of it wasn't, like, bad, bad. You know, could have been, like, fun bad. But uh, sometimes, you know, there were certain situations which more serious, and it was causing, you know, friction between my dad and my aunt sometimes. But, you know, he always came through for her, and so did my mom, and that's my mom's ex-sister-in-law, but they always be, remained really close, so.
0: When you are growing up, did she ever talk to you about sex and love?
5: Yeah, a, a little bit. I remember uh, one time, at this point, she was full-blown AIDS, and she was sitting in the rocking chair in my aunt's living room, and she was just, we were watching TV, three of us, Mom was cooking in the kitchen, my other aunt, and we um, were watching something, and then out of nowhere, she just kind of leaped forward, and she was like, you know, protect yourself, and we you know, pointing her finger at us, and it kind of like freaked us out, we are like, what? And she was like, listen to me, I want to talk to both of you right now, and we were like, what? And she was like, don't do drugs. When you hook up with people, please protect yourself. And don't do drugs, because I don't want you to end up like me. And she pointed to herself. And she's like, you see this? I don't want this to happen to you. And my cousin and I just looked at each other kind of like wide-eyed, you know? Like, uh, okay, you know, kind of freaked us out a little bit. You know, because at that point, we already knew what she had and what she was dealing with.
0: Did you take her advice?
5: Uh, Yes. As a matter of fact, throughout my teens to my mid-20s, it was hard for me to be intimate with someone because I always had that image of her and her casket in my head. Her full-blown, I'm sorry if I'm being a little too graphic or whatever, but you know, her full-blown appearance, you know, she was very skeletal, if I could say, in her casket. And that was, uh, it's an image that I've, it's imprinted in my brain Trevor. I recall that at her wake, my family wasn't satisfied with the way she looked. They developed they They made her look kind of like old. Her hairstyle and her outfit. So they're like, you know, Blanky was always hip in her hair and her makeup. So my mom and my stepmom, who were not the best of friends at the time, these are two women who usually could not be in the same room, actually teamed up for the greater good. And my mom, the hairstylist, puts out pulls out a little travel size hairspray out of her purse and and my stepmom pulled out some lipstick. And before the crowd started coming in, they actually teamed up and they did up her face and her hair. Yeah, before the doors opened for everyone else to come in, and they actually hooked her up and made her look more like herself. And I was there, I watched the whole thing. I just sat there and uh, stood there as my mom and my stepmom and one of my other aunts kind of like all collaborated and did her, her eyebrows, her makeup, her lipstick and her hair and her blush, and they made her look more cool. It sounds probably odd, but it's a, it was inspiring. Like, it was inspiring to see two people who don't get along coming together to do something nice for someone they both loved.
0: It's an unbelievable image. Yes. The idea of this family doesn't totally like each other very much coming together to fix a woman's hair who died much too soon. Correct. Is it hard for you to talk about?
5: Sometimes, I guess, depending my emotional state at the moment.
0: What's your emotional state right now?
5: Relax, chill. Ex-
0: except for working with your father?
5: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I love my dad. And, you know, he's he's a, he's a cool guy. He's done a lot for me. You know, my dad, yeah, he's had I mean, dad, my dad's a New Yorker. He's from the Bronx. He's Puerto Rican. It's mostly a Latino and Italian neighborhood, you know, where he's come from. So it's, a, you know, the tough guy thing, the machismo Latino thing. But my dad's also pretty level-headed. Even when he found out, I mean, he always knew I was different. I was queer, I was different, but he always knew that. But he never asked me or my mom. They both were kind of scared to ask me because they were scared to offend me as I got older. What ended up happening was I ended up telling them. I mean, I never, it's kind of weird. I didn't really have to come out because when I told them, they already knew. But when I got shot at the Pulse nightclub, my dad was the first one there.
0: What happened that night?
5: That night, I went out with two of my best friends. Then we ended up at a gay bar, you know, two for one drinks. And then from there, they're like, you know, we should do a Latin night. And I'm like, well, we want to go straight that Latin night, or gay Latin night. And then they, you know, we all decided on the gay one. So we ended up at the Pulse nightclub, and we went and we were having fun. And we were going to leave, and I decided to stay a little longer. I told them, hey, like, let's, you know, we're ready to leave. And then the DJ mixed in my my favorite. Summer jam at the time, so I was like, wait, "Wait, wait, we can't leave." What was it? At the time, it was Drake "One Dance." All I need is one dance, so I was like, "Okay." And I was like, "Oh, this is my my cousins and I were jamming to that the the, the week before they were here on vacation, so that was like our weekend summer summer jam." So the DJ mixed it in, and then he mixed. We were here like, "All right, we're ready to go." And then he mixed it into another track that I like, which was another Drake song. And then um, I'm like, "Wait, wait, after this song, after this song," and then. My friend's like, I'm going to go get a drink. And my homegirl's like, all right, you guys will get a drink. I'll sit on the speaker in and, and the corner and I'll wait for you guys. We got our drinks and we said hi to a couple of friends who sadly are no longer with us. That was the last time I hugged and kissed those those friends. And um, uh, the shooting started, you know, the pop, pop, pop. And at first we all thought it was part of the mix of uh, the music because it, it was the hip-hop side of the club. So it was the hip-hop mix. And, you know, they, they sometimes add these sounds as they continued i was like those are not that's not a mix that those are real shots and you know things got crazy and everybody started scattering and it just got really hectic and what did you do i made angel duck angel's over six feet tall he's way much taller than me, and that he's not used to you know urban street lifestyle which i am so i'm familiar with that kind of lifestyle and the things that you see and deal with he's not he's a church boy just came out of the closet he's just starting to come out into his own and it was probably one of his first early few times at pulse so i made him duck down while i stayed up to look because i wanted to see what was going on i'm one of those people that i have to see what the fuck is going on i can't I'm like that chick in the Bible, Lot's wife, when they tell him to leave Saddam and Gomorrah as it's burning. Don't turn back or you'll turn into a pillar of salt. I'm that bitch, they'll turn into a pillar of salt, because I have to look. So <laughs> so so and, and you know, and that's just my nature. So I stood up looking to see why where it's coming from, what's going on. Like I wanna assess the situation and and I made him duck down underneath where the bar stool's go. And eventually he's like, Jeff, I want to make it to the bathroom, I'm go to the bathroom. I said, Don't go to the bathroom because it's a freaking trap. There's no windows. You know it's concrete walls and it's a death trap there's no escape there's no door there's nothing so what ended up happening was he it got it got, it got, a little crazy and i said you know what go 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 and he went and i stayed behind and then eventually i can see him coming around the corner through my left side my peripheral and and he shot several people they passed away and that's when i made a run for it and there was a what i believed to be was an african-american male uh, dressed in white, and he was by the doorway of the bathroom signaling me from across. He was like, you know, come on, come on, come on. Like, I got you. And and I made it across. And I actually slipped and fell. I mean, like the chicks in horror movies, that actually happens. So I really did trip. Like, I didn't think that would happen, but I did. And I tripped and I fell. He stuck his arms onto my, my my armpits and just, like, lifted, scooped me up and threw me into the men's room. And I looked around and, you know, I made it into the, the big handicap stall. I went in there, and there was about fifteen to twenty people crammed in already in the handicap stall. He came in, he shot over the stall, under the stall. I, I was shot at that point in my leg. When I got into the stall, by the way, Angel was there. But our friend V, my homegirl, we did not know where she was. I thought that she had passed away, or she was. Eventually, we found out she was in the stall with us. Then he went into the next bathroom. He shot again, and then he came back to our bathroom because people were screaming and asking for help. So we were trying to tell everybody to keep quiet. They didn't listen. And eventually he came back for a second round at us. And that's where I really got hurt. And more
0: people died. So there were 15 plus people in the bathroom. and the
5: men's room, yes. The women's bathroom was bigger. They had more people. And he killed almost everyone in there. I, out of the 49 that passed away, I lost six of my friends. One girl was executed in front of me, right on her head, on the side of her head. And she fell back. She passed away in my lap. I I did the best to console her and keep her as comfortable as possible as I myself, handicapped and bleeding out and can't move much. And I did what I could until she passed away. I didn't know her, but I just felt it was the only human thing to do at the moment.
0: You saw the person who did this?
5: Not face to face. I saw him in the corner of my eye when he came in. And then I can see his legs and his feet through the bathroom stall but I later saw what he looked like, yes.
0: You said you had six friends who passed away?
5: Yes, six that I knew, yeah.
0: Do you ever feel like, holy shit, I am still here, and I very likely could have gone the way of many other people?
5: Absolutely, absolutely. When we were in the bathroom, Angel was like, Jeff, you're bleeding, and I was like, yeah, I I know I'm bleeding on my leg, I wanna show him. And he's like, no, no, you're bleeding from here. And I had gotten shot on my neck slash collarbone area When I was like, what? I didn't even feel that. It was just an insane scene. It looked like something out of a movie. And then as that happened, I kind of passed out a little bit. My eyes rolled back, Angel says, and I disappeared on him for a bit. And what had happened is that at that moment, I started getting flashes of my childhood, of me playing with my grandparents, which are no longer here. So I was like getting flashes of, me as a toddler, playing with them, things I forgot that I even had in my memory bank, flashes of me with my aunt, <laughs> uh, flashes of me as a teen. Then it would go back to my childhood and it would jump back to something I recently did like a month before. All these memories were just jumbled coming back and forth. And then all of a sudden I like snapped out of it and Angel was calling me like, Jeff, 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 you know, and just squeezing my face and woke up and I was back in the bathroom again. And we found Lee. Thankfully, Lee was a medic. She's an ER medic. So she was able to take charge of the bathroom and MacGyver the situation. She was just, you know, taking off her bra making, you know, tourniquets and just to do, to, tying things on people, putting pressure. She made people who weren't injured, you know, you put pressure on him, you do this to her. And, you know, she just had kind of took control of the bathroom and until we were rescued. And the bomb squad blew up the wall and took us out. And by the way, when I made it to the hospital, I remember right before I passed out, touching my, my right side pocket. It's The only thing I could move was my right hand. I couldn't move anything else. My body was all jump messed up from being shot. And I remember touching my wallet because I wanted to make sure my, I, they could identify me in case my family or something. I don't know why I thought that, but, but yeah, and I could feel my wallet was there. And then they asked me my name. I said it with a whisper because I had no strength. I bled out for three and a half hours. I was blue. And eventually later, I find out, the doctors, that I, in less than five minutes of my arrival, I had respiratory failure and I was gone. So they brought me back. So I literally died in the nick of time, but I died at least in the right place where they were able to get me back and going. And I didn't wake up for two days later. And my dad was the first one there. My dad was at the scene while I was in the bathroom. My dad was at the scene with my brother uh, yelling at the cops. He wanted to, my dad wanted to go in. He was like, where the fuck is my son? I want to see my son. Get my son. He's in there. My son is in there. And this is the guy who is not the most homo-friendly guy, but there he was front and center, the front lines. And that's making me emotional (laughs) in a good way because he was there for me, you know? he was there like, man, he was trying to get through that barricade and the cops were pushing him back. My dad, my brother had to drag him back. He said, dad, we have to go to the hospital. They said, go to the hospital. We don't know where everyone's at. They don't know who's in, who's out. Just they'll be sending everyone over one by one as, as they keep coming out. And They waited in that waiting room for 16 hours, and every hour the doctor and the nurses would uh, mention a name that said, the families of so-and-so and and -and so-and-so, please come to the front, we're sorry, your son and daughter did not make it. The family of so-and-so and and -and so-and-so, please come to the front, your son and daughter is in stable condition. After 16 hours of that, parents crying, families and friends passing out, some were on all all fours, vomiting in the waiting area from the anxiety. After 16 hours, I was the last name called. And they were able to come see me after surgery and they did not know my status. So they basically kissed me goodbye because they didn't think I was going to make it. And the same way my dad was there for me to go back in full circle, when my aunt passed away, I was there for him because when she passed, he didn't think I knew. And I was already home and he came to drop off my brother. And I was like, hey, he's like, hey, and then hey, you know, and I was like, so yeah, I heard. He's like, oh, you heard Blanqui and I said yeah, and this was the first time I saw my father cry. He broke down and he got on his knees. He broke down and I was standing up, and I actually held him. I held him. He was hugging me, kneeling, hugging me as I'm standing, and he just broke down and he just kept wailing, my baby sister, my baby sister, my baby sister. She wouldn't listen to me. She didn't listen to me. I wish she would have taken my advice, my baby sister. That's what he kept and I was there for him, you know in that sense, and he was there for me. My surgeries, my doctors, again, even though even now when I have doctor's appointments or anything, even as a grown-ass man, he'll still travel this way (laughs) just to make sure I'm okay.
0: After all that's happened, how do you and your father continue moving forward?
5: I just feel like we're survivors of various things, so we feel like we have to keep on moving. We can't stop. I feel like we have a lot to do there's a lot to be accomplished we just have to keep moving and in a way also we are the connectors of our families and our circle of friends we are the conductor (laughs) Um, it's funny my mom is the same on her side my dad's on his side and myself for mine for my circle of friends and cousins and family we are like the the conductor connector you know we we have to keep living and keep pushing and sometimes my aunt crosses my mind. You know, I, I do things for myself, but I also do it for her and others that I've passed away because I feel that they're not here to do that or enjoy it or make. They don't have that chance to do it anymore. I still have that chance, so why not keep pushing forward and living and doing what whatever it is that I want to do at that moment?
0: I um, really appreciate you doing it and for giving me your time and sharing your story. I have a sense that it will mean a, a great deal to many people.
5: Thank you. Thank you so much.
0: Since the Pulse nightclub shooting on June 12th of 2016, Jeff has put his life back together. Working with his father remotely, he remains in Orlando, a city, as he says, with a little bit of everything. In fact, he's convincing his friends and family to move there, one person at a time. He's the great connector amongst the people he loves. Perhaps when you go through what Jeff has gone through, You start valuing connection a little bit more. You take in each moment fully. You remind yourself that this very moment may be our last. Jeff learned that lesson in a way no person should. But it hasn't deterred him. Before his Aunt Blanqui passed away of AIDS, she would tell Jeff about her night's dancing. It was New York City and Miami in the 80s and 90s. She was young and free and far away from home. As a gay Latino teenager, Jeff found a kindred spirit in Blanqui, and when he misses her, when he needs to remember that smile, that person so full of life, he goes to the stereo and puts on a favorite of hers by the Mary Jane girls, and then he dances like he may never dance again. How are we feeling about doing this?
3: Oh, i um, always happy when I think about my friend. But doing this, always a little anxiety.
0: Well, why don't we focus on your friend? Where did you meet her?
3: I met her in Chicago, and she was one of the first women I met when I moved there after completing college, moving into my funky studio apartment. And we worked together.
0: Where did you work together?
3: We worked at a bistro called Yvette. And then we both also worked at a sister restaurant called Turbo.
0: Did you guys talk shit about the customers together?
3: Oh, no. So the (laughs) restaurant did a back waiter, front waiter system. So you had to have a partner. And Nanette was my regular partner. And either she would do front waiter and I would do back waiter, but we were a team. So... Yeah, we talked about people, but our clients, we worked them. We used to joke. The chefs would make a joke. Like if they had a fish dish that they could not get rid of, like, oh, we got to get rid of like that white fish from last Thursday. Nanette would go to the table and do this description of it with the essence of shallot and finished with a cognac cream and da-da-da. She could sell you like a dirty tennis shoe, with Bordelais sauce on it. I mean, you would eat it and yeah, I need that Bordeaux to go with it. (laughs) She was magnificent.
0: Where did she get that skill from?
3: (gasps) she was the most sophisticated, worldly woman I had ever been friends with. She'd had an unusual private school education, then a college education, then she traveled, then she worked on the cruise ships for a while, in the kitchen as a chef of some kind, studying to be a chef. Then she came back and went to graduate school and went into interior architecture. And she had worked at restaurants all over the city and was friends with every chef, every restaurant owner. She was a fixture. And then that was the gold standard of how a sophisticated, worldly woman, unencumbered, not married, didn't have kids, how she was living her life. And she was about 12 or 13 years older than me.
0: She was in her 30s. Yeah. While you were in your 20s. Correct. So she was taking you under her wing in some ways.
3: Anyone who got to enjoy the place under her wing was lucky.
0: You two both eventually stopped working at the restaurants. What happens then?
3: We remain very dear friends. So she was on a team when the Art Institute was gifted the original Playboy Mansion on North State Parkway. She was part of a team that was going to develop what they were going to do with that space. And she was living there. And I can tell you <laughs> that was fun when she was living there. And we'd come over and there was this big indoor pool in the place, <laughs> but it was, it was nasty. You wouldn't really get in it. But we do, we sit and drink wine and yuck it up and go to a big conference room that had like a huge long table. And,
0: and I'm not gonna ask what you two were doing in that empty conference room. <laughs> in the original Playboy Mansion, at least on a podcast. But as you've said on this show before, being a woman-in-law in in the 1980s was incredibly challenging because of its male-dominated environment. Considering Nanette was a Black woman trying to make something of herself, did she ever share her challenges with you?
3: Nanette came from a background of privilege. She She opened my eyes to a lot of stereotypes that I was carrying about Black culture. She was not from an impoverished childhood. She never really expressed difficulty. She was an achiever. You know, she didn't express difficulty. If there was, she certainly didn't mention it. She did very well financially.
0: What was it about her that you felt deeply connected to?
3: Her absolute love of life and her absolute ability to be fully present in whatever she was doing. You know, it's two in the morning, we've worked or we've been out, and she knows a place up on North Clark where the old Greek guys go on Saturday night. And this is the real Greek food. Forget about Greek town. The men are all dancing together. And, you know, in we walk, we sit in the back, These men know her. They wave to her. I'm like, how do they know you? She would go anywhere on her own or with a guest. And I feel like she just, she was an adventurous person. She she knew all the different corners of the city. One of the greatest things that I loved about her, well, there are a couple of stories, but one is her ability to throw an impromptu gathering. It would be a thing like two o'clock on Saturday afternoon, yes, why don't you come over? I'm going to make my famous New Orleans catfish and everyone will be there. And you'd go to her condo and by God, everyone was there. If I could imagine what a salon gathering in Paris was like at some time long gone, that's how this would be. There'd be musicians and artists and her friends from the South Side her friends from New York wearing their African outfits. And you would just be like, how did I even get invited to this? Where do I fit into it? And on one occasion, on the particular catfish occasion, the apartment caught fire. And so, <laughs> the police came to put out the fire in the condo kitchen. And I do believe that some of the battalions stayed behind to eat the catfish. <laughs> the, the connection I had was her, her absolute love for life and her knowledge of what it's like to live in other parts of the world um you know i hadn't traveled at all she had just been everywhere and i never had met anyone like her and i've never met anybody really like her again
0: considering she's someone who loved life so much what happened when she told you that she was sick
3: She called me and she asked me to meet her for drinks. And it was the usual kind of thing that we would get together and do. And I was kind of up for a little party night and we went to the pump room and she had ordered a bottle of champagne. I'm like, yeah, so what's the deal? And when she told me, I was shocked. I I, I said, there must be, there must be, you know, it must be a wrong test. You gotta do it over again. And I think she was really shocked. You know, she wasn't crying She was very matter-of-fact and we agreed she was going to go and retest and she wanted to talk about it a little bit and I can honestly say that that was really the only time she ever wanted to talk about it. She did not make her diagnosis, her death sentence. She did not make her world about her illness. She just forged ahead as if it wasn't happening, maybe it was denial but she just continued to live joyously.
0: How much longer did she live for from the point that she told you that she was sick? About eight more years before she passed. That's a long time.
3: Yeah, it was a long time. And to my mind, she didn't look sick at all, even up to the time she passed. She was hospitalized for a few things on a few occasions, but she looked as beautiful as she always had.
0: Do you remember the day that it did happen?
3: Of course. But the day I learned or the day she
0: passed? suppose both.
3: Yeah. I remember the content of my last time with her, which was on a Thursday evening, which was in the real Greek town. Your father was there. Some friends of mine from Canada were there. And we were all having dinner out. We had a great time. Nice dinner, work night. And we made plans for Sunday she was going to come over for Sunday because her father had passed away about a year earlier and that Sunday was going to be a father's day and she just said she didn't want to be alone so we invited her to come over to our apartment and then we didn't hear from her and we couldn't find her you know it wasn't like her so by Monday obviously she didn't go to work on Monday so her brother actually called first and asked me if I had heard from her I said no and Long story short, the family found her in her apartment and she was taken to a hospital. I understand I wasn't made aware of it until after the fact.
0: I've been hearing about this woman since I was a kid. She's always sounded larger than life. How did you move on from her passing?
3: Well, I think fortunately for me, when she passed, I was pregnant with you. And I was so caught up in that that it was a buffer for me. It really helped. You now I had your dad and I was pregnant with you and, uh, but it left such a void for me because I really didn't have any other women friends that I was close to the way I was close to men at. I mean, there's the family you're born with, and then there's the family that you make for yourself as a young adult. And she was my family and no one ever replaced her in my life as a female friend.
0: I never knew the answer to that till right now. If you wouldn't mind, before we go, could you uh, tell the story?
3: One of many great stories, but she was a great singer and she knew every corner and every jazz club in the city, no matter where. We used to haunt a place called the Gold Star Sardine Bar, which in its heyday was pretty amazing. It was on its kind of last legs and we'd gone in late one night for a cocktail and a very sorry sounding jazz quartet was playing and out came the singer. The singer was crying and the room was full and the singer was kind of mousy. And my girlfriend, without batting an eye, standing up, being a drunk, anything, she just took over the next verse of that song and belted it out. And at first the maitre d looked like, oh, no, we got to shut it down. The manager did. No, no, let it go. And she was beautiful. And when she was done, she finished her drink, she was like, Yeah, let's go to Ozzy's, another bar that we like to go to. And we got up and left. And I'm like, How can you do that? And then just go. It was amazing.
0: Mom, thank you for doing this with me.
3: I'd say anytime, but please. (laughs) (laughs) I wish you love. I wish you love.
0: And now that song Nanette sang so many nights ago may she and the late great nancy wilson rest in peace this is i wish you love
2: i wish you bluebirds in the spring to give your heart a song
0: to sing and then a kiss but more than this i wish you love and
4: in July.
0: And that's our show. Special thanks this week to Stuart at the AIDS Memorial. Without him, this would not have been possible. To learn more about their incredible work, please visit the AIDS Memorial on Instagram. I'd also like to thank everyone who shared their stories, Aaron, James, Kelly, Jeff, and of course, my mother. If you'd like to listen to more of our show, be sure to visit www.talkeasypod.com. You can also listen on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, Google, Stitcher, wherever you do your listening. As always, Talk Easy would not be possible without our incredible team. Our executive producer is Janik Bravo. illustrations by kresha Shenoy, our associate producer is Nikki Spina. Our lead editor is Andre Lynn. Our assistant editors are Joshua Siegel, Kevin Kaur, and David Harding. Music by Dylan Peck. Marketing by Patrice Lee. Booking by Jules Rector. Our interns are Grace Perkins and Ian Simmons. Graphics by Derek Gabrizak and Ethan Seneca. And the show is produced by Caroline Reebok. I'm Sam Fergoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. We'll be back Sunday with another episode. Until then, stay safe and so long.
1: The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you, and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry, and me, I'll be there too. Enter now at t-mobile.com slash unconventionalawards. See you there.